Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. Buying a home has long been a part of the American dream, but when it comes to taking that leap, things have changed a lot over the last few decades. Take this house on the market in the suburbs of New York City in the 1950s. So here's the home that cost its happy owners just $9,000. And that includes such extras as a completely equipped kitchen, a two-way fireplace, a finished room in the attic, and even a washing machine. Compare that to this house recently on the market in San Francisco. Take this 1960s four-bedroom, two-and-a-half bath in the Mission, complete with vintage bathroom fixings and original kitchen appliances. This cosmetic fixer-upper hit the market at $1.3 million. Within a week, the seller received 28 offers. Stories like these can make it seem harder than ever to buy a home. So here's the question we're gonna look at today. Is it time to revisit home ownership as a part of the American dream? Spoiler alert, the answer is probably not, but we're gonna take some time to break down all the barriers to home ownership out there and find out if there are ways to make it easier. We'll talk about the bigger picture, but let's actually start with a more personal story. Well, I have a classic baby boomer. My first house, which was a New York co-op apartment, was purchased in 1978. That's Lori Goodman, a vice president at the Urban Institute and a big-time expert in housing finance policy, who also happened to be ahead of the curve in New York City real estate. I think I was 23 or 24 at the time. And um, home prices in New York had gone down a lot in the early 70s and were just beginning to rise. So I bought that apartment for, I believe it was $80,000, which was way up from its previous value. I worried that I overpaid. I'm telling you, that house made more than I did and it didn't go to work every day. It was the biggest real estate home run I have ever experienced. And by the way, at the time, I wasn't making very much, and it was a huge source of our net worth. Lori's approach to homeownership worked out really well for her, but she says most millennials aren't taking the same approach and buying homes as early in life as she did. So millennials are way behind either baby boomers or Gen Xers at the same age. So the homeownership rate is about eight points lower for millennials than it was for boomers or Gen Xers at the same age. Clearly, millennials have been much slower to transition into homeownership. So what are the big reasons that this generation isn't buying houses at the same rates? Well, the first one is obvious. It can get really pricey out there. Cheryl Pardo, who works in communications with the housing finance team at Urban, says the cost of a home all depends on where you live. But in big cities, sticker shock is very real. Well, it's interesting. If you look at national data, it's actually about hitting what the historic averages have been for affordability. So if you look at the national median income and the national median home price, they're about where they've been historically. But of course, everybody knows real estate is local. So the reality is in coastal cities, in towns that are really popular, in cities where there's a lot of jobs, it's very, very expensive and very difficult to buy a home today. So there is an affordability issue. 
But it's not just sticker shock. There's a second reason people aren't buying homes at the rates they used to. To get that context, you have to go back to 2008. Foreclosures are rising, and the biggest problem is that prices continue to drop. Until home prices stop falling, things just aren't going to get any better. The stock market is now down 21%. Because we're now down 43%. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? After the housing market crash and global financial crisis, the Department of Justice cracked down on mortgage lending practices, suing just about every major lending institution under the False Claims Act. Cheryl and Lori say this has made it a lot more difficult for many people who can afford a house to actually get a mortgage. The second thing that is tougher right now than has been historically the case is it's much harder to get a mortgage. It's harder to qualify for a mortgage. There's been an overcorrection after the crisis. Lenders are very wary about making loans. And that's made it hard for people that have perfectly decent credit, that are perfectly capable of paying their monthly payments. It's made it harder for them to get a mortgage. Over the past decade, the median credit score for mortgages has increased by 20 points. It was probably about right to get a mortgage in 2001, 2002, 2003. It became too easy in 2005, 2006, 2007, and the pendulum has swung way too far the other way. Um, We have a housing credit availability index, which measures how difficult it is to get a mortgage. And our index shows that the mortgage market as a whole is taking less than half the credit risk it was taking in 2001 to 2003, which we view as a period of reasonable credit standards, and less than a third of the credit risk it was taking in 2005, 2006, 2007. So one, it's expensive, and two, it's tough to even get a mortgage right now. But there's another important thing that's scaring people away from home ownership, and that's saving for a down payment. Most people think they need to save a lot more than is actually necessary. There's a really interesting and important thing going on right now, which is people have a misperception that you need a much larger down payment than in fact you do. There's surveys that have been done with renters that show that something like 66% of them are find say that a down payment, putting together that down payment is the main barrier to home ownership. At the same time, most of these people think you need a 15% down payment. The reality is the median down payment in the US, which is the number that half the people are above and half the people are below, is literally 5%. So down payments are much, much lower today than they were. For example, in 2006, they were about 20%, but they're lower today. So people think they need to put down a lot more money than they really do. And most of us also don't know that there are a lot of programs out there to help. Here's Lori again. The other interesting thing, which is the topic of our research, is the widespread availability of down payment assistance programs, particularly for first-time home buyers. And so many people have this perception, oh, I need to put down at least 15% or I won't be able to get a mortgage so that they don't actually take the first step. They don't actually figure out how much you have to put down and then look at the availability of down payment assistance programs. No matter where you live in the U.S., there are places to help you with a down payment. In fact, there are more than 2,500 active programs out there, and most are at the state and local level. Every single state has a program that can help home buyers put together that down payment. And sometimes those are grants, sometimes those are loans, 
Sometimes they do not depend on your income. A lot of them are focused on first-time homebuyers, but the point is in your state, there's something that can help you put together a down payment. So that is a barrier to home ownership right now that is more of a misperception than a reality. And what's pretty surprising is that these programs aren't just for low-income renters. They're often available to higher-income people too. So we looked at borrowers who received purchase loans last year in Washington, D.C., and found that 37% would have been eligible for some type of down payment assistance, despite a median income of $110,000 and a median loan amount of $364,000. So if there are programs out there for potential homebuyers with down payments, the question is how many young people in the U.S. could be buying houses but aren't? There are about 19 million millennials in the 31 largest metropolitan areas that have the credit and income that are necessary to purchase a home. That is, their credit score is high enough, their debt-to-income ratio is low enough, but myths about down payment may be holding them back. They may not feel the need to purchase just yet. They're renting, they're happily renting, they don't want to be worrying about mowing the lawn. But certainly, you know, there's a huge number of mortgage-ready millennials that we would expect to see age into home ownership over the next few years. Another really interesting thing when you look at that is how it breaks down in terms of race and ethnicity. So the vast majority of those 21 million that are mortgage-ready are non-Hispanic whites, but there are 4.6 million Hispanics in that group. And that's a group that we are seeing increasingly moving into home ownership. And that's very important because that is obviously an increasing demographic in the country as well. We are continuing to see real challenges with Black home ownership. There are just 1.7 million mortgage-ready Black millennials. And um, we've done a lot of looking into this group. There are a lot of reasons that African-Americans have fallen behind in the home ownership factor. And it's something we're concerned about and that we need to do a lot of work on. So when you put all of this data together, are Americans, and especially millennials, missing the boat? Should they be thinking about going out and buying a house? Well, as you can imagine, Lori says it's best to make this kind of decision very carefully. It all depends on where you live, how much you have in the bank, and if you can budget for other expenses like home repairs. So homeownership is, is not for everybody you really need to be sure that you can sustain it. There are high transactions costs involved in buying a home. And if you lose your home to foreclosure, it's very very expensive and it's devastating. So you need to be sure that you can afford the monthly costs. You need to also be sure that you can afford things like a roof repair or the type of maintenance costs that you always have on your home. And that has to be a part of your calculus. But even with these real-world costs in mind, many millennials shouldn't give up on homeownership just yet. And here's the big reason why. Because buying a home remains a key way, and maybe even the best way, to build wealth. Yeah, so in many places in the U.S., owning a home is just flat out less expensive than renting. So not only are you building equity, but it's also less expensive on a month-to-month basis. That is, if you consider your mortgage payment plus your taxes plus your insurance, you're shelling out a lot less than if you were renting a place and you're building the equity and you have a stake in future home price appreciation. In other areas of the country that are very, very expensive, it may be economically more efficient to rent. 
Right. Absolutely. I think it is it is definitely not true that home ownership is for everybody, but home ownership is still the way m- most Americans can build wealth. And what's interesting about it is it's it's not what some people might think that, oh, it's because you figure out when to buy and then it appreciates and you sell it. That's not why homeownership builds wealth for most people. The reason homeownership builds wealth for most people is it forces you to save every month. You're writing a check for $600, $800. Most of us aren't good about doing that unless it's required. And a mortgage requires you to do that. So fundamentally, it's that discipline, that forced discipline that has made it such a successful wealth building tool. To sum it all up, homeownership is going to continue to matter in the long run for our country, for the economy, and for people pursuing their own American dream. People ask if it is of concern to us that many fewer millennials are now buying homes. Our research shows that we've lost about 3.4 million homeowners recently because of the lower homeownership rate amongst millennials. Does it matter? Is that just a new phenomena? Are millennials just going to rent instead? Here's why I think that matters a lot. The sooner you get into the home, the more equity you build in that home. And unfortunately, you tend to not find out how valuable that is until you're either trying to pay for your child's college tuition and you do or you don't have some equity to tap into to do that, or you are reaching retirement and you are now looking at 10 years or 20 years of home equity accumulation instead of 40 years. So is it important? Is it matter to, you know, the economy that millennials are not buying homes in its, at as high a rate? I think it matters very much to the economy. And I think it's really going to start to matter to millennials as they start thinking about retirement and what kind of wealth they've been able to build. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things you need to know. One, there are a few big reasons young people aren't buying homes at high rates. To start, it's expensive in big cities, and it's hard to get a mortgage because in recent years, lenders are raising the bar on the credit score required to get a loan. Two, there are a lot of misperceptions about just how much you need for a down payment. The median down payment in the U.S. right now is 5%, and that's much, much lower than most people think. And there are at least two down payment assistance programs to help potential home buyers in every single state. And three, there are millions of mortgage ready millennials in the US that already have the credit and income that are necessary to buy a home. For these folks, homeownership remains one of the best ways to build long-term wealth. So the message to that group is don't give up on homeownership just yet. So that's our show. Thanks again to Lori Goodman and Cheryl Pardo. Check out our show notes to read up and get access to more resources on homeownership from Urban's Housing Finance Policy Center. If you like the show, tell your friends. We love your support and need your help connecting us to other smart, policy-minded folks out there. And a big request from our team. Please take a few seconds to rate the podcast on iTunes or your podcast app. It takes literally seconds and it helps spread the word about the show. And another cool thing. You can actually ask your Alexa or your Google Home to play Critical Value episodes whenever you want. Just ask for the Critical Value podcast and we're like 85% sure that it will play the latest episode. Thanks to our editor, Riley Byrne, and a huge shout out to producer Katie Smith. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off. 
Okay, here's a little bonus material that we weren't able to fit into the rest of the show. Lori Goodman talked about the False Claims Act, and it has a crazy history that dates back to the Civil War. And recently, the Department of Justice sought to find ways to apply that law to mortgage lending in coming out of the housing crisis. And so she paints a little bit of that history here. And we thought as a deep cut for you loyal critical value listeners that you might appreciate this story. So check this out. There's actually a statute in the U.S. called the False Claims Act. The False Claims Act is actually a Civil War era statute, and it was introduced because people were selling the Union Army um, mules that they claimed were horses. They were selling the Union Army uniforms that they said were cotton that were actually made of a material called shod, giving rise to the expression shoddy merchandise. As a result, they, they introduced a statute that said, If you lie to the government, you are subject to triple damages under the False Claims Act. That had never before been applied to financial institutions. In 2011, the Department of Justice came around and said, well, you know, they looked at some of the FHA loans that had gone to claim, that is where the FHA um, had actually paid out on the insurance and said, well, gee, we went back and looked at the mortgage application and you lied on the application and therefore you are subject to triple damages under the False Claims Act. So almost every major lending institution has been sued under the False Claims Act and most have settled. There are actually two institutions that are fighting the False Claims Act. Quicken Loans is the one large institution and there's a smaller one, Guild Mortgage. But basically banks have paid out a huge amount but they feel like the standard on lying is very, unquote, lying or being subject to the False Claims Act is very, very strict. So if they find one misstatement, no matter how small, on the loan application, you are subject to the False Claims Act. So, for example, in the Quicken Loans lawsuit, the Department of Justice actually sampled 110 loans and then found that something like 55 were defective. And some of the defects were very, very small, like in income was misstated in two different parts of the application by $13 a year. But certainly what you've actually seen over the past few years is because of the False Claims Act, the banks have imposed overlays on their lending particularly on FHA lending, and said basically, okay, FHA requires a FICO score of 620. With this down payment, we're going to require 660 or 680. The non-banks who have much deeper pockets have not used overlays to the same extent. The second set of issues involved with why it's so much higher, harder to get a to get a mortgage is some of the servicing issues, which we've written extensively about. Non-performing servicing is really, really expensive. And as a result, banks and non-banks say, well, why would I ever want to make a loan that has any probability of default? So what they do is, again, impose more overlays on the FHA, Fannie, and Freddie box. It used to be, you know, it was probably about right to get a mortgage in 2001, 2002, 2003. It became too easy. 
in 2005, 2006, 2007, and the pendulum has swung way too far the other way. We have a housing credit availability index, which measures how difficult it is to get a mortgage. And our index shows that the mortgage market as a whole is taking less than half the credit risk it was taking in 2001 to 2003, which we view as a period of reasonable credit standards, and less than a third of the credit risk it was taking in 2005, 2006, 2007. 